Ladies and gentlemen, dami i gospoda. Mi imem čest privetstvo. We have the honor of welcoming President Medvedev at the LSE. The relations with Russia has been developing in the last 20 years quite successfully. Here we have annually about 100 students from Russia and every year they organize a Russian week of business here. Additionally, together with the Russian High School of Economics, we conduct here a program for the Russian economists. It is for the first time that we have here the head of the Russian state. And I'm not aware whether Emperor Nicholas II has been present, was present at the opening of this school in 1895, but he wasn't outgraded anyway. Russian? That's true. But I did want to impress the president that I learned a few words of Russian only in 
and uh, perhaps everyone living as in this room would understand whether two, two dozens of the leaders who got together here in London understand the substance of things to define the destinies of the econo economies of the world and opportunities for creating new architecture. Well, I don't know to which extent how well we are versed in all these issues, but we tried and tried it at earnest. We do understand that our future lies in our common responsibility and through our common efforts. Today, in the, at the conclusion of the G20, uh, we've reached a high note of uh, commonality. Everyone who spoke uh, said that it is very difficult today. Today, more difficulties are ahead, and we don't know where's the bottom of this crisis. We don't even know whether we've found an adequate set of uh, tools to address this crisis, but we tried to uh, our best, and I hope that uh, few, a few things would work. But 20, 20, 25 years ago, especially at the time when we visited the Pioneers Camp near Leningrad, it was difficult even to imagine for leaders of such uh, diverse, different countries, economies, states with so different historical and political traditions to get together on a short notice to take very specific decisions. Well, I would like to remind you that the Breton, to create the Breton Wood machinery, it took quite a long time. A few dozens of years. From the time of the beginning of the Great Depression. Of course, we shouldn't uh, be content and satisfied, but we are satisfied that we learn to work fast to listen to each other, to meet, to discuss issues. We are trying to address things fast. Today, uh, we've taken a number of decisions as reflected in the Declaration. I would not list them, not to bore you, but I would only mention that we agreed to implement a number of major anti-crisis programs to stimulate our economies to top up the resources of the IMF and to an unprecedented uh, amount with a view to assisting the uh, states and uh, the peoples who suffered from the crisis only on the basis of the major reform of those organizations. The amount of ad additional assistance, as stated in the uh, declaration, amounts to one trillion, a hundred billion dollars U.S., enormous sum. We also agreed to develop new rules to regulate financial markets, to coordinate the processes uh, through the Council on Financial Stability or Financial Stability Council, which would re replace the Forum for Financial, financial Stability. Uh, this council would uh, have on, its, on board all countries of the 20, of the G20, of course. We agreed on stimulating the growth of our economy, which is based on a pure, efficient, clean, efficient green technologies. Of course, every country had its own priorities, and uh, the Declaration was not able to accommodate all of them. But that is perhaps not the most important thing. 
the leaders of the 20, most importantly, found a certain consensus. And uh, within that understanding, we will try and overcome the difficult situation which the global economy and the global financial system has found itself. One more important issue addressed at the summit was the development of the currency, uh, currency system. A few words about our position because it would maybe of interest to you because it, what, it was not um, correctly reflected in the media reports. First of all, we would like to proceed from the premise that the global economy today uh, witnesses a natural trend towards strengthened influence of the regional currencies. And also that instability at the currency market remains to be very serious. Number two, countries uh, whose currencies prevail in the uh, operations today do not bear sufficient responsibility for the situation neither in the country nor for macroeconomic performance as demonstrated by this crisis. Number three, we believe that the experience of euro as a European currency, uh, given all its shortcomings, uh, was quite positive. Therefore, our conclusion based on those considerations is that on the one hand we should support the development of strong regional currencies and new reserve currencies. At the same time, on the other hand, one of the options of using such reserve currencies in the future could be emergence of an individual supranational currency based, for example, on special drawing rights of the IMF. Functional uh, within the aegis, under the aegis of the IMF. We uh, did not make any statements in our communique on, on this score, but in paragraph 12 uh, it says that the, this issue should be in focus. I mean, the issue related to the monetary policies and fiscal policies, and the sides would take all the necessary measures to improve these policies. Now, on our insistence that passage was included, as a reflection of the uh, movement in the right direction. Of course, uh, we don't even think uh, of destroying the existing institutions. We must support, protect, and ensure them. But we should also evaluate uh, the achievements of the uh, global currency system and think about its future. That's the substance of our procedure. Speaking of the responsibility again, I would like to stress that before our eyes we witnessed the uh, uh, destruction of the existing paradigm of uh, the development. That is, state was overseeing the security functions, business was supposed to deal with economic issues, while the uh, moral issues were to be dealt by the civil society structures. The prevailing crisis demonstrated that such separation is not perfect. In normal life, in real life, all these things should be mutually intertwined. Otherwise, economic becomes immoral. And in the final analysis, despite all 
uh, intermediate successes, we will all witness a very, very deep crisis. It is my understanding that business is not only a desire to gain the maximum uh, revenue, as you would agree, but also a responsibility taken upon itself by those who deal, uh, who implement the business activities. You would also agree that in a considerable number of countries such responsibility was too much for some businesses. They were not prepared morally to bear this. And in their desire to reach the super uh, revenues, the money has obviated for them all the other criteria of the successful, a successful life and all moral values and norms. In the end, underestimation of uh, the risks and overestimation of incomes have become a regular practice, and such destructive approach was not only curtailed by the existing institutions, such as the auditing structures and rating agency, but also promoted by them. And frankly, we were all witness to this process even when I was not engaged in the political life, I was in the business, in the legal business, I remember how I dealt with auditing, auditing companies. And you would understand how and what is discussed with them and what decisions are taken, were taken sometimes. It means that a rather serious gap developed between the understandings and desires to get more money. The most the riskiest and the most responsible were those institutions who uh, by definition, by default, should be the maximum conservative institution, I mean the financial institutions. Today in many countries we witness another direction of development. There is a temptation to take everything under the, uh, into the care of the government or to turn it into the state property. But it also in a number of countries they do it already. They've done it already. I, I'll be frank with you. We are not trying to do such things in our country. Indeed in Russia we st still have quite a lot of assets owned by state. We cannot exclude it completely in the event the economy would continue to see such dramatic change to the worse. But in my view, the state support should be of a temporary nature, including the state support in the form of uh, entering into the capital or assets of such companies especially since we're using the taxpayers' money and we can do it only on a very limited scale. One more temptation which uh, uh, emerges as a attempt to respond to the crisis, building fences around the national markets. Protectionist was Protectionism was also discussed and reflected in the Declaration. You, as uh, people of 
knowledge and of science would ask to which extent the national economy should be defended. This is a major question both for the businesses and for the political leaders. The reply is on the one hand simple, on the other hand it is rather general in its format. One must protect only from an unfair uh, competition. And we will try to do that in Russia with the maximum uh, precision and efficiency. On the other hand, should one prevent the businesses of putting their production where it is most profitable? Overall, no. But for that, there must be such rules that would be modern and perfect, if you will, moral rules. One should also think about whether one should limit, restrict the banks in their uh, financing the companies in other countries. That would not be right. That is a vestige of the paradoxes as, uh, resulting from the crisis. But the bodies of the banking oversight should operate in such and interact in such a way that there'd be no fears uh, about such uh, investments. And there, was no, uh, there were no fears of the flight of capital. Today we need the principles of fair play, which, uh, of course, are to be understood, a fair fight without prohibited tackles, to use the sporting terminology, and the doping in the form of protectionist me measures uh, would only be effective for a very short period and would bring uh, more problems of the same time type as the doping brings to the athletes. It is also true uh, for the protectionism in trade and in other areas which are equally important. I mean the uh, denial of access to technologies and commercial assets or uh, excessive restrictions for the uh, labor migration. Dear friends, I believe it would be useful also to mention what we do and what we plan to do to overcome the crisis. You are aware that we in Russia, like any other country, in the focus of the crisis developments, we have taken a number of special decisions and programs. The measure of the efficiency will, of course, be evaluated by the people of our country and uh, uh, after some time. But I would note in this connection that we do not intend to change our overall priorities, long-term strategic objectives, to in increase our productivity of labor, efficiency of production, uh, on the basis of innovation. Of course, we should focus on helping the, our people who are in a very difficult situation due to the crisis, which was directly uh, mentioned in the declaration that we adopted. I mean the most vulnerable categories of people, re retirees, large families, people with uh, disabilities, and so on. Those are the people who, on having trusted the economic policy of the state, have uh, taken, have taken loans and have uh, 
at the same time lost their jobs and cannot serve their mortgages anymore. In order to help such people, we are allocating quite substantial government resources. We pay different allowances and restructure the mortgage loans and foresee different employment programs. And another point which is important is the tackling of the shortcomings and drawbacks of our financial system, which has to become in keeping with the modern needs. Since we did not improve this beforehand, it is the time now to create those mechanisms which would be applicable and would be workable in fighting and in working with different difficulties, such as, for instance, so-called toxic assets. And for these purposes, we should be using different means. We have come to the conclusion that banks today are more prepared in restructuring the problems of their borrowers in the current situation. That is why we extend additional finance in order to provide additional capitalization for our commercial banks so that they would get additional liquidity in order to provide for their functions. This is done through co-financing and investments by private investors. So we have a combination of public and private investing here. And thus, we are going to compensate the reduction of the demands in Russia due to the fact that we are export-oriented. So we are going to use the resources which we have accumulated in the past. And this is a helping hand, of course. But at the same time, we fortunately have to forecast that we are going to face budgetary deficits. And it can reach the figure of 8% of GDP. And in such a situation, we are going to restructure our budgetary spending plan for the forthcoming years. But at the same time, we are going to keep the pace of financing of social programs. I would like to touch upon another topic which does not have any direct link to the crisis. But it has a direct link to the providing of security in the world in general and in Europe in particular. Just some time ago, we have formulated an idea of a new arrangement in the area of security. And I mean here security in Europe. And we come from the conclusion that in the whole area of Europe, from the Atlantic Ocean and as far as the territory of the Russian Federation completely, the security has to be equally provided to all citizens living in this space. The matter of how this should be done is now discussed by different institutions. It is NATO, the OSCE, the European Union, different formations which appeared in the former Soviet Union area, such as, for instance, the Collective Security Treaty Organization and many others. But the problem is that each of those mentioned structures cover only some fragments of security. And in certain cases, due to the fact that this or another question leads to differences in us, 
This sometimes leads to a situation which resembles the situation of uh, the Cold War times. And this is really pitiful because the nature of relations between Russia and Europe and the level of mutual dependence of interrelation of our countries and the history itself uh, witness and demonstrate that we must live in complete contact with each other and we have to de develop jointly because Russia is not the Soviet Union and it is not even a for of a post-Soviet Union state. Our country for over 18 years is developing as a modern state with uh, market economy and it is a democratic state. It has its own national interests which we are observing and protecting and our uh, development uh, direction is not so different from the European countries uh, and we hope to enjoy full-fledged and equal partnership and trusts and confidence on many issues. That is why I am referring to the European security matters. And here, of course, we have an, another components uh, connected here, which is providing of the energy security as part of the general security. And I would like to say uh, on purpose that we are not satisfied by the situation in this uh, sphere. The events of uh, early January this year and the situation of the transit of gas through the territory of Ukraine have demonstrated that the legal framework of uh, the current day fail to work appropriately. Because they do not work, they cannot bring anyone to order, and many states simply do not participate in that. For instance, Russia does not participate in the, U in, in the energy charter, uh, because our understanding is that uh, uh, this uh, document protects the consumers, uh, st states' consumers, but it does not protect the interests of uh, energy resources producers. So what is the conclusion which can be driven from that? And the, and the conclusion can be pretty simplistic. We need to develop some new solutions. And I've talked about that with my colleagues both in Germany and here in Great Britain. And in near future, I suppose, we will prepare and distribute a document which uh, would help different arrangements which exist to get translated into real life. Uh, three years ago in St. Petersburg, when the G8 summit was organized uh, there, we've uh, prepared corresponding decisions. So, what would I like to say in the conclusion of my remarks? Those who are students are enjoying the, uh, the happiest uh, time in their lives, as, as any person who was a student himself and then a professor at the university, I really envy you, honestly. I should tell you uh, that uh, when I enter a student's audience, I always feel, have some, some, have some special feeling because uh, I still have bright uh, my uh, recollections of how, how I was uh, delivering lectures at the St. Petersburg University and I am enjoying the time here speaking to you. So I would like to wish you every success and I uh, really believe that you will have an opportunity to get brilliant education and will be in a position to use this education to prevent crises uh, in future, like the crisis which we are living through today. Just a couple of words. I would like to uh, quote to you the words of one of the 
establishers of uh, the London School of Economy of uh, Bernard Shaw. I believe that you know these words, and I like them. People are always blaming their circumstances for what they are. I don't believe in circumstances. The people who get on in this world are the people who get up and look for the circumstances they want. And if they can't find such circumstances, they make them themselves. These are brilliant words. Thank you.
What is a military alliance? A means to protect the interests of certain countries. But there are countries who are not members of that alliance. And when the alliance is developing, those countries get apprehensive. Perhaps this is all done against them, especially taking into account the experience of cooperation between the two alliances, cooperation in inverted commas. NATO, like any other organization, in my view, should, be, should demonstrate the maximum responsibility to follow the dictum not to do harm. Therefore, we should view as how the NATO develops internally and the uh, exception of new members brings new responsibilities and new difficulties. I wouldn't mention here specifically anyone, but not all the new NATO members are easy to talk, to, to talk, to talk with now. I would not also categorize those as uh, young NATO members or old NATO members. It's easy for me to, uh, to discuss all of this, being, being outside. In this sense, NATO uh, is better of thinking in uh, terms of uh, maintaining domestic uh, internal unity and solidarity and not aggravating relations with its neighbors, including the Russian Federation. Before taking any decisions to further expand, one should think about the consequences of such decisions. I yesterday frankly described it to, to my new friend, comrade, I would rather, President of the United States, Barack Obama. <laughs> Young student right in the middle there, Margot. Um, stand up. <laughs> there you are. Professor Margot Light from the London School of Economics. Thank you very much, Mr. President, for your very interesting speech. I was wondering about this new European security organization that you envisage. Do you see it as replacing the organizations that already exist and deal with aspects of European security? And if it's not to replace them, what kind of relationship do you envisage between the new organization and those organizations so that we don't have a situation where issues actually just fall into the cracks between them? Absolutely appropriate question. Thank you for it. Well, of course, when I formulated this idea almost a year ago during my first visit to Germany, for myself I also tried to identify what would that be, bearing in mind that all organizations are not perfect and there is no structure that, bring, that brings us all together. And there was no crisis at that time. And we did understand that there are issues and problems in our relations. There was no economic crisis. There was no August crisis in the Southern Caucasus. And we had a feeling that we have a problem. Therefore, it seems to me that we should be guided by the premise that the creation of such an agreement, a pan-European agreement, should not lead to the replacement of, the, of existing organizations. All organizations that exist must remain. Moreover, they must be instrumental in developing such a new arrangement or treaty. That should be a universal pact. You may ask, what's so bad about the OSCE? 
Well, the thing is that OSCE has come a long way from a meeting on the security and cooperation in Helsinki in 1975 when two blocs stood against each other. And now it is an organization dealing with particulars, specific issues, and not quite always efficiently. Therefore, there is a desire to create something new that would take on board the traditions of the past also, the best of them. And in my view, that should be a forum for discussions of all issues, both for the countries who are members of the North Atlantic Alliance and for the countries who are in Europe but outside the NATO alliance, to discuss issues of economic security, energy security, military security, political issues, anything. At the same time, to take rather legally binding decisions. How do we agree on this with other organizations? There is a room for thinking and deliberation. A hundred years ago, the creation of such an organization like the United Nations seemed to be absolutely unthinkable. Although the system of international law started its development in the mid-19th century. Our forefathers created the United Nations, and given all its imperfection, it's the only universal organization which helps us to address a plethora of issues. The same is true for Europe. If we have failed to agree on basic principles, such an organization could be efficient and effective. Thank you. Mr. President, my name is Megan Cox. I'm an undergraduate here. My question concerns the current economic crisis. In light of current circumstances, a lot of conventional wisdom seems to be pointing towards more government intervention in our economy. Does Russia's past as a command economy make it easier or more difficult for the government to involve itself in its economy? That's a brilliant question. It is. Indeed, we do have our own experience of command economy, of planned economy, or whatever you call it, or state economy. But I believe that this experience we have simplifies our task that we have. Because my formation as a specialist came to the time of the market economy. I myself still do recollect pretty well the norms and rules that were operational at that Soviet time. And I recollect all the difficulties and the problems and the birthmarks of the planned economy. And all those difficulties which people who live in such a system face. That is why this experience as a most precious value for any person is a great advantage. But if someone wants to try the command economy, one should of course read the political economy textbooks and of course the works by Karl Marx.
естественно, это хорошо. Which is only natural and rather good. Jolay from Anthropology Department. Uh, when I ask a question is, maybe you noticed people here, almost 80% of people need a simultaneous translator to, get, to understand your speech. How do you interpret this phenomenon? And what's your plan to promote Russian culture, the Russian language in the future or during your uh, reign? <laughs> So we're not uh, active enough, I suppose, and I believe this is our fault to some extent that not everyone here understands Russian. <laughs> this is the first point. And the second, you know, if uh, putting it in serious terms, then the level of penetration of the Russian language as any other language uh, uh, is dependent how close are the relations between the businesses and uh, uh, the cultures. I believe that now uh, we are in a situation where we can stimulate these processes and uh, add additional steam to them because I believe there are no barriers on this way. Maybe the only uh, barrier here is that uh, Internet uh, largely is an English-speaking community and I myself uh, am uh, searching through f foreign websites in the English language. However, now we are trying to push forward uh, the registration of domain names in Cyrillic. Probably this will help to improve the knowledge of the Russian language worldwide. Um, well, I don't know if it's a white check, right, but yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, so Terry Vandoros from LSE Health. Uh, thank you, Mr. President, for your very interesting lecture. Uh, during the, under the Bush uh, administration, there was, there were, the anti-missile defense of the United States was a major issue in the relationship between Russia and the United States. Uh, under the Obama administration, do you think that something has changed? Uh, do you believe that the program will still go forward? And if not, uh, what will be the, the reaction of Russia? Are you still uh, going forward uh, also amid the crisis in the multi-billion uh, program of, um, of um, the... Uh, upgrading the Russian army. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you see, I believe that the uh, positioning of new ABM systems and the relevant radars is a mistake. The way it is now being implemented. A mistake to be blamed on the administration, previous administration of the United States, and many of my European colleagues be, believes, believe so. But that is not the, the, the matter. Any protective measures, and ABM system is a defensive measure, including against threats originating from unstable countries, from the countries who aspire to become nuclear, members of nuclear club, and have not succeeded yet, such a defensive measure should be of a joint nature. We once proposed to the Americans to create jointly a global system of the anti-ballistic missile. With the Russian system being a part of it, we suggested that they use our radars. They, they said 
No need. Do not bother. We agree with the two countries without even informing other countries as well. Everything will be nice and dandy. We will station missiles there, switch on the radar. Everything will work. But that system would not be able to work against all threats. It is stationed close to our territory. Of course, we do not like it. And despite the assurances that, of course, we will be allowed access if the receiving countries would agree, we're not sufficient. We're not enough for us. Therefore, we had to decide on the response measures. I wouldn't want very much to put those decisions into practice because we have all chances to avoid that. I had a discussion on this with the U.S. president. At least I can tell you that on the part of the United States, there is a desire to listen to our arguments. They are not trying to cut us off, saying that the issue has been decided. That's it. There is nothing to discuss. Therefore, if we try and persist on both sides, we'll be able to find a way out of this very unpleasant situation. Speaking of the modernization of the Russian army, every country, every state modernizes its army. We cannot remain with the army which was created during the Soviet Union time. Like the United Kingdom modernizes its armed forces, NATO countries also do the same. Normal process. We cannot just rattle our sables and demonstrate our muscle. That is counterproductive. Those are treated with respect who do not show their muscles, but who have very good muscles, not showing them off. Therefore, we will continue putting on some muscle. I, as a commander-in-chief, the commander-in-chief, must deal with that. My name is Georgi Chaladzin. I come from Georgia. Wonderful. You mentioned the crisis in the South Caucasus, in my country. My question is related to this. Are you going to recognize the mistakes you made towards Georgia? And how are you going to improve the relations towards Georgia or with Georgia if you are going to do it at all? Thank you. Thank you. I'll try and answer in absolute frankness the way I understand it. First of all, I believe that the dramatic developments are not the reflection of the deepest sympathy that has always existed between the Russian people and the Georgian people and the other way around. They do not also reflect the historical decisions taken back in the 18th and 19th centuries when Russia facilitated the emergence of the Georgian state, independent. Everything that's happened, I'm being absolutely frank with you, is on the heart of the Georgian leaders. 
I would even tell you more. When I became the president of the Russian Federation, I met with Mr. Saakashvili and I told him that we are pre were prepared to help in the restoration of the territorial integrity of his state. But for that, one should conduct, behave in the right way. As you would understand, the military action have never ever facilitated the strengthening of any state. Because of mistake of one person, the price was paid by a great number of people. We would want to have good neighborly relations with Georgia. To repeat, we love, like and appreciate the Georgian people. I do not want to have any relationship whatsoever with President Saakashvili. I will never talk to him or meet with him. But as a result of democratic processes, the power in Georgia sooner or later would change, were to change. We are open for discussing any issue. Mr. President, in a few weeks you will celebrate your first year as President of Russia. And I wanted to ask you, during this first year, how much of your time did you devote to domestic affairs and how much to foreign policy? As you see, my question is a little bit about the division of labor between you and Vladimir Putin. Thank you. That's a good question, an appropriate one, of course. Because I'm very pleased that this anniversary is not remembered only by me, only because this indeed was not the easiest year of my life. Well, I had, I should tell you, some easier job before. But I should tell you still more openly, the work of a president is an interesting job. It is, indeed. It is interesting because you have to tackle such tasks which are impossible to resolve if you are in a different position. This, of course, requires a high level of internal mobilization of your own strengths and taking of important decisions in some very difficult situations, sometimes undramatic. Speaking about the distribution of authorities, I believe that I have responded to that before. One should simply think in a legal way, as I like to do so. The president is the head of the Russian state who is responsible for the domestic and foreign policy. The president of the Russian Federation takes decisions on all key matters. And he is the person in charge of everything which happens in the country, be it the economic crisis or any other events, including sometimes very difficult and grave, such as, for instance, those which took place in August last year. And speaking about Vladimir Putin, who is a colleague of mine, with whom we have good, friendly relations. I was in his team when he was president. And now Vladimir Putin is 
chair of the government, which is a tough job, especially during the time of an economic crisis, because it is the government which holds the main responsibility for resolving economic tasks, and the government organizes the matters of domestic activities, and part of those functions is in the government, but our constitution and our law on the government, act on the government, is organized in such a way that some ministries report to the government directly, but there are some ministries which report not only to the government, but also report directly to the president, and it is the so-called set of those ministries, such as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, of Defense, and many others. So we are in close contact with the government. Everything else is from the area of some emotional estimates and assessments. I believe that from the point of collective work, so far we have been successful in creating this team, and when we were organizing the structure of working together. The president must not miss his easy jet flight to Moscow. So I think, with your permission, we'll take one more question. Is that okay? So we'll take the woman here in the mauve cardigan, maybe. Yes. Thank you. And thank you, Mr. President, for coming to talk to us. I was just wondering what impact, if any, the protests in Trafalgar Square and around London have had at the very highest level and amongst yourself and President Obama and Prime Minister Biden. Thank you. Well, I will just jump the easy jet, and I will try to call President Obama right from that easy jet, and I will ask whether he was influenced somehow by those protests. I myself did not see anything at all, only on the TV screen. Probably the roots of movement of our motorcades was organized in such a way that we did not come across anyone. But the fact that people are protesting, this is just a matter of a form of protest. When they are crushing banks, I do not like this. I was grown up in a country where there were lots of revolutions, and we do not like revolutions, I should tell you. And nevertheless, the people have to have the right for the protest. People have to have the right for protest against the government, against the decisions which are taken at summits. And the matter is just which form such protests take. I believe that in London they were not the most perfect ones, especially in the situation when that led to a tragic case. But at the same time, the organization of the work of the summit was at a very high level, very good. I have just talked to the journalist from the Russian Federation. I would like to say once again what I said just some time ago. I wanted to extend my gratitude to the government of Great Britain and to the Prime Minister personally, Mr. Gordon Brown, my counterpart, my colleague, for creating really good conditions for work. Indeed, business-like atmosphere, full-fledged and 
comprehensive work was provided. I feel that uh, Gordon has dedicated all his heart to that. And this helped to create a substantial declaration, not a shallow one, but a really particular declaration of substance. So I would like once again to extend my gratitude uh, to my British colleagues for organizing the summit. Student Russian, right. Dan, are you, are you, yes, I think you are one of our Russian students, if I read. Yeah? Okay, well, I have one question in Russian. Oksana. thank you very much for coming and telling us so many interesting things. Domestic questions, since it's in Russian. Hassan Kadyrov declared recently the end of the Chechen operation. How far is this through, and how... How do you see it? Of course, that is a domestic issue, but having uh, international repercussions, everything that's been happening 10, 15 years ago in Chechnya and the Republic of Chechnya was unfortunately not only our problem. Unfortunately, we encountered then the actions which other countries encountered a bit later in their history in other places. I would not, of course, describe to you the whole history of counter-terrorist operation, a very dramatic, with lots of casualties, like any struggle against terrorism. Today, uh, the situation in Chechnya is different. I myself rather recently dropped by Mr. Kadyrov to see how he is faring. And I noticed how much construction, new construction is there. When people start new constructions, it means that internally they are ready for peaceful existence. Those who run with their submachine guns in the forest, they do not want to build houses. They have other values in their lives. That's a small indicator for you. In substance, I believe that the situation is ripe for changing the counter-terrorist operation regime there, which is not to mean that there'd be no operations of the internal forces and certain counter-terrorist operations. If anything happens, we will have to act, quite obviously. The same experience of the United Kingdom here. But overall, the counter-terrorist operation in a very uh, rather for, uh, near future could be changed, allowing the Republic to take a number of foreign trade decisions to open air communications with the rest of the world to make life more normal, more civilized there. We can only welcome this. But... Anyway, bearing in mind that the situation in the Caucasus is still far from being a simple one, I personally mentioned that we will follow closely the developments there. Should there be any problems, we will have to act very decisively and precisely. Thank you very much for your speech, and particularly for very full and open answers to a wide range of questions, and I thank the questioners for them. I should say before you leave that we have one embarrassing tradition at the LSE, um, which began when Nelson Mandela was here, and that we give our people a cap. Um,
happened is,